0: Scripture reading this morning will be from the book of 1st Chronicles chapter 16 verses 7 through 13 if you're following along in the pew Bible that's on page 373 1st Chronicles 16 7 to 13 on that day David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord oh give thanks to the Lord call upon his name Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing songs to him, talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones.
1: Good morning. It is good to see each one of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. We hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It's good to be together as a church family. We need to pause sometime and many times and just make sure we realize the great blessing that we have and that God gives us the opportunity to be adopted into His family and then be a part of a church family like this. With gratitude in mind, I want to encourage you, as we have for many years here, why don't you, this time of year, while the rest of America is thinking a little bit more about gratitude, why don't you make a list of at least 100 things for which you're grateful? What I would encourage you to do is not do it all at one time so that you can experience it over a few days. You may have already started your list, but if you haven't, if you wrote down 20 things today and then 20 Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, you'd have at least 100 things that you're thankful for. I want to encourage you to think about big things, but also think about the small things. I want to encourage you when you do that to pause and pray about it. I also want to encourage you if the setting is appropriate, maybe when your family gets together for Thanksgiving, you go around and read portions of your list and just spend some time being grateful to God. That truly is a simple but yet powerful exercise. As we think about gratitude, we're thankful uh, to the kirbys and the McGreevies as deacons and their families helping lead uh the gift of thanksgiving meal to foster families they said the job was made so easy because so many of you helped so much. Uh, we're thankful for families in our community that help children, and we want to be their greatest encourager and supporter. And uh, we're thankful for all of you that took part in this wonderful, simple way to say thank you. As we think about encouraging others, keep in mind that there are still several families in the Operation Turkey Board just outside the foyer and back against the wall here on the left, and it's a real simple process. If you need to know more, but it's the idea that you would give them $50 to buy a Christmas meal and write a quick note of, of Thanksgiving to them for the work that they do in the Lord's kingdom and close in that a picture of yourself. If you would, they would love to see who is writing this. That'll all be translated and sent down to them. It is a powerful work. We have many more names than we have in the past, so there's still several names there. So if you're thinking about doing that, today is a great time, take the name from the board uh, so that we'll know that that person is taken care of. And please try to do that today because these are due next uh, Sunday uh, so that we can get these translated and down to them over the next uh, few weeks. Today, I want us to begin a lesson that I really strongly encourage you to come back tonight gather with God's family, and let's hear the rest of this story together as we think about a beautiful book in the Bible, First and Second Chronicles, that was written as one book in the Bible. And we learn so much about gratitude from this book. With that in mind, I, I want to share with you a story of Edward Rickenbacker, who was a young man, son of an immigrant family born and raised in ohio when he was about sixth or seventh grade his father was killed and because of that he dropped out of school and began helping his family survive in the days of horse and buggies he always had a strong interest in motors and things that were mechanical he saw his first vehicle in 1905 and he was intrigued and then within a short time period later He was racing cars at the Indianapolis 500. He raced in four of those races before World War I. And in World War I, he became an American ace fighter pilot. As a matter of fact, he's considered the most successful fighter pilot of World War I, and for that matter, perhaps of all times. He had 26 aerial kills in World War I, which made him a national hero. When he came back home, his love for automobiles still remained. And he started the Rickenbacker Motor Company. He designed and produced cars that were highly technical for that day and time. The other companies that were the major players in that day, in a sense forced him out of business because they feared the success of his cars. He wouldn't take failure though. He just took his love for automobiles to buy the Indianapolis Speedway. But his long-term business endeavors took him back to the skies. He bought from General Motors, what became Eastern Airlines. He was the first commercial airline company that produced a, a commercial airline that was profitable on its own without government subsidies. You see, he was a man that was recognized all over America. He'd been on the cover of almost every magazine and even had his own stamp and on newspapers His life. Because of his years in World War I and the great success that he had there, he was commissioned during World War II to go to all the various places that pilots were stationed and to motivate them to be courageous and skilled fighters. He also evaluated the training that they would receive. It was on one of those outings that he was on a B-17 that overshot the island that it was to land on. And because of that, they ran out of fuel. They crashed into the waters. The plane sunk rather quickly. They gathered a little bit of food, but honestly, the eight people gathered there thought they would be rescued very quickly because they had one of the most famous men on the earth so far as a military man. And so they thought if Rickenbacker's in the water, somebody will be here quickly. Well, the days turned into weeks. They only had enough food for three days. By day eight, they're lying in the raft, exposure, Dehydration and starvation is starting to set in. Nobody knows exactly why, but for whatever reason, miles and miles lost out sea, a seagull lands on his head. He reaches up and captures it. It becomes their meal that would sustain them because from there they were able to take the intestines and have bait to catch fish, which would enable them not only to have more food, which by the way, he was, I guess, the forerunner of sushi for all you crazy people that <laughs> like raw food, more power to you. Maybe you'll survive out in the ocean sometime. And, and then he would use the intestines of the fish to catch more fish. 24 days later, the loss of life of one of those eight men but they were rescued it was amazing that after only two weeks of resting up from his exposure and dehydration and starvation he went right back on the path and flew to the next island and began his evaluation and his training process everything i've told you to the best of my knowledge and historical It's true, it's factual. I wanna share with you something that is debated. There's a rumor that it supposedly has some strong roots to it, but it goes something like this. That occasionally throughout the rest of his life, you could find him at the end of a pier, holding up shrimp and having seagulls come and eat the shrimp out of his hands. And that was his simple way To express gratitude for the fact that without that one seagull their estimation was that none of those eight men would have survived maybe you look at that and say well that's not the way I would express gratitude but I want to ask you this morning and today even tonight I want to ask you a very simple but important question how do you express gratitude this past week How have you expressed gratitude just make a mental note real quick what are all the ways that you've expressed gratitude this past week wouldn't it be ashamed if we evaluated our life and on one hand someone says hey are you a grateful person and we just kind of roll out with the words sure I'm a grateful person okay prove it prove it what have you done over the last 24 hours that expresses gratitude? What have you done over the last seven days? What have you done over the last month that expresses gratitude? I'm not suggesting to you that it ought to be just one thing, but I am suggesting to you that our life ought to be the result of an example of gratitude in so many ways. One of the reasons I love making that list of 100 things of which I'm grateful is that it is an opportunity to express gratitude. But for just a moment, let's think about the simple definition of gratitude. If we were to look it up in a dictionary, a modern day dictionary, it would say something like this, the quality of being thankful, readiness to show appreciation, and to return kindness. Now from this, what I see kind of tucked in, maybe a little bit indirectly, but not that much indirect, is it? I see two things. People that are really grateful are people that feel indebted. Something has been given to me and I didn't receive it saying, well, I deserved it. It's about time you gave it to me, God. Well, I deserved it, spouse. It's about time you gave it to me. I deserved it, kids. It's about time you did it. I deserved it, boss. It's about time. It's a big difference. And people that receive with gratitude They receive blessings feeling indebted. Look what I have received. I am thankful. I am indebted. Therefore, it is the indebtedness that causes us to say, let me express back to you, God. Let me express to my employer. Let me express to my family my appreciation for fill in the blank in deadness and action. Those are the two things that is so powerfully proclaimed through sincere gratitude that if we're not careful, what we start thinking is, we start thinking like this. Well, gratitude is just thinking in your mind, I'm thankful for this. And I would just wanna challenge that thought in your mind today. If you think gratitude, it's just thinking in your mind, oh, I'm thankful for this. I would say to you, that's nothing more than a good thought. And so now what are you gonna do with that good thought? You could be grateful with that good thought. And if you are grateful, it's going to come out. Not that there's a big difference, but let's look at this very same concept in Greek, the, the New Testament, you know, was originally written in Greek. Here in Romans, the first chapter, verse 21, we see the word thankful. And I want you to notice the definition out of a, a Greek lexicon would say this to be grateful. But then notice in parentheses, actively to express gratitude towards. In other words, today you will even hear atheists this week, and and I'm not trying to beat up on a non-believer by saying this. I'm just observing this. This coming week, because Thanksgiving is a national holiday, you will even hear atheists say very positive things about gratitude. And they're probably sincere. Well, we ought to be thankful for the country that we have, or we ought to be thankful for the provisions we have. What I'm saying to you and I as Christians is that this gratitude is Toward someone, you see, our gratitude is toward our God, our Creator, our Provider. Or maybe on another level, our gratitude is toward friendships, or family, or or whoever it may be. But it, and then even in this, in the Greek, notice it says especially say grace at meals. Do you realize that that when we pause to pray before a meal, it should never be just an exercise of habit. It should always be an exercise of gratitude. I am truly thankful for this food, and I realize that I didn't provide it. God's the one that has provided this food. Deuteronomy the eighth chapter is a powerful study in that. If you've never studied that, beware. We can get big, nice houses and we can get a lot of good food, and we forget who provides it. That's what Deuteronomy 8 is all about. And so. <clears throat> It's important that we recognize this. Now, just real quick, when you notice the, the Greek there, you see how closely tied it is to Eucharist? And you remember back several weeks ago when we were studying about the Lord's Supper? Remember I mentioned to you in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter in verse 16, that sometimes the cup of the Lord's table there in 1 Corinthians 10 and 16, it is called the cup of blessing. In other words it's called the cup of thanksgiving in other words we receive this Lord's Supper with great gratitude to God so as we partake of this supper we should take it in a way that we express gratitude to God in the way we partake of it and so that's the very same thing here now how important is this In Romans 1 and 21, and and we'll just go to this next slide. I want you to notice here, 21 through 23 shows us stair steps downward away from God. This passage is going to begin with individuals that know God, and it's going to end with individuals that with their own hands have created their own idols. Now, pause there for just a moment. How in the world do you do that? How do you go from worshiping the almighty God who created us to saying, you know what? I don't believe in him any longer. I want to now take my hands and I want to make my own God. See that rock? I'm going to chisel out my own God. See that piece of wood? I'm going to cut out my own God. How do you go from there to there? Well, lest you say, oh, I, I, don't, I don't see how anybody could do that. Paul says, let me show you how everybody does that, that chooses to start on these steps going down. So we read here in 1 and 21, and he says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. The idea of glorify is to esteem, to extol, to hold up. How great is your God? do you glorify him as that great? What about if God is the almighty, powerful, omniscient God, but we just kind of glorify him like, hey, he's kind of like my buddy next door. He's just kind of like one of us. Well, if we don't extol him for who he is, we are starting a tragic path downward. Well, what's going to be the very next step? When we fail to glorify him, the very next step is nor were thankful. In other words, now we stop feeling an indebtedness to God. And so therefore we do not express our gratitude to God by the way we live or by the way we worship and etc. Now, we're not going to break down the rest of this, but I'll just mention it, the rest. The next step is that makes our thoughts very futile, uh, morally depraved. In other words, now, instead of thinking the way God would teach us to think, we've decided to start thinking the way we would think. And because of that, our foolish hearts becomes darkened. In other words, we're not enlightened with the wisdom of God. We are are now bringing the dark thoughts of humanity into our life. And the ironic thing is, notice verse 22, anytime people do that, they profess themselves to be wise, while in fact, they're foolish. Now, we regularly hear that. The further folks get away from God, the more arrogant they become about what they believe. And they just know that this path is right. And, and, you know, sometimes you say, wow, you just can't reason with them. Well, that's because they've left truth behind. But yet what they're believing right now, they believe it just as if it were truth. And so because of that, they begin to change God they now want to shape their own God. So they may look to something that's created and worship it, or they may just make something that looks like something that was created. Now, all of that is an introduction to this morning and tonight's lesson. A lesson that I hope that we can give justice to a brief overlook, and then just a little bit of pinpoint study in a portion of first and second Chronicles. When we think about this topic of gratitude, I want you to think about 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. They're historical documents that when we get to 1st and 2nd Chronicles, a lot of people kind of throw up their hands and say, well, what's this all about? It's kind of like the same things again. It seems so repetitive, actually, that is the case because if you took Genesis to 2 Kings, First and Second Chronicles covers an overview of all 12 of the first 12 books of the Bible. So I ask you this, why would God do that? The Septuagint is the one who ended up dividing these books. For example, uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel used to just be... Samuel 1st and 2nd Kings used to be just kings and some would actually take 1st and 2nd Samuel 1st and 2nd Kings and call all of that Kings and the Septuagint would even divide it up and say 1st Kings 2nd Kings 3rd Kings and 4th Kings I'm only telling you that to say there is a break then in thought if you will when we come over to Chronicles but Chronicles looks like a rerun and you say why is this written so much like the other Let's pause for a moment and think, who was it written to? He was writing to Israel after the 70 years of captivity, they were finally allowed to be able to come home. But the glorious Jerusalem... And the glorious temple that was built back in Solomon's day that if you and I, even in modern day now, if we could walk into Solomon's temple, I assure you our jaws would be down and we would probably say, I have never seen anything like this. It was an amazing, expensive, glorious structure. But you remember the reason they were in exile is because it was a war-torn town now. Jerusalem had been destroyed. A lot of their people had been destroyed. Now only a small Jerusalem wasn't there. The wall wasn't there. The temple wasn't there. And now they've been away for 70 years. Now they're able to go back and you know what? They're probably thinking the glory days are over. This wonderful kingdom that we used to be a part of isn't so wonderful anymore. Not only that, it's hard work building everything back. It's getting discouraging trying to build back a city, build back a temple, build back a wall. Remember, Nehemiah was even shocked. You, you mean you haven't built the wall back yet? Well, let me come over and help you build the wall back. So how are they gonna deal with this apathy? Question, how's God gonna deal with this apathy? How is God going to encourage them? And one of the ways that God encourages them is by giving them First and Second Chronicles which is a history to show them how strong their spiritual lineage is and that they're still a part of that glorious kingdom and that the powerful God still reigns and they need to continue to walk with him to see his power again. As a matter of fact, keep in mind, 1st and 2nd Chronicles was written as one book. How does this book end? Go back to the very end of 2nd Chronicles, if you will. When you look at 2nd Chronicles, This is a history leading to the point of their return. You remember the King Cyrus who wasn't the king of Judah? Would God use such a man like that to help his people? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, when we read the last two verses of 2 Chronicles 36, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 22 and 23, now the, this is how it ends. Everything about the history has been leading up in a sense to this ending. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, so now you're telling me God's going to use a Persian king, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, and you can read about that in Jeremiah 25, if you want to read about it also in more detail, Isaiah 45 gives an amazing insight so that that this prophecy might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing saying, now pause there for a moment. Do you realize that Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied about what Cyrus was gonna do before he was even a king? 150 years beforehand, God said through the mouth of his prophets, I'm gonna use a king that's not of our people to do something magnificent with our people. Cyrus, a Persian king, will do this. Now notice what he said he's gonna do. This was said 150 years before uh, he was in power in doing this. So in 23, notice, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, talking about the temple, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. How does does this book of history end? Remember he's writing to discourage people and it ends by saying, don't you see that you're still a part of God's plan? Don't you see that that God is even 150 years before, even years and years before the fall and before the exile, God was making a plan to come back and to establish your kingdom again, to rebuild Jerusalem again, to build back. And as a matter of fact, he even says, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have another king to help make this happen. And in Isaiah and Jeremiah even points out the fact that he did it with no reward. In other words, He didn't go and build those things and then say, hey, by the way, you you owe this back to me. God had him to build and to do what really, when you look at it in hindsight, was an amazing thing. So when we look at a brief mention, uh, I, I want you to see what, and we will develop this tonight, but in First Chronicles 1 and 9, we see a genealogy. This goes all the way from Adam up to the present day of their time. In First Chronicles 10 and then through 2 Chronicles 9, the emphasis is on David and Solomon, but especially a concentration on the temple, the worship, and the Levites. The reason the Levites is because they were a priest. Now, please note this. The reason that that's so important is because that takes up 60% of these t- books or one book, however you want to call it first and second Chronicles. It takes up 60% of the writing. Why? God is wanting them to see the need for worship. In other words, if God teaches his people how to be grateful, one of the ways he teaches his people to be grateful is worship him. Worship is a very vibrant form of gratitude. God, I love you for all you are and all you do for me. And I want to praise you and lift you up and express my gratitude. And that's what we're going to see in this. And in second chronicles 10 through 36 we see the concentration on the divided kingdom but the concentration is real simple keep in mind they're they're covering you know from david if if a lot of this concentration on david and solomon you're covering from then to the time they're reading this about 450 years so if you're going to only write a a few chapters about all this first and second chronicles you're going to write something that short about 450 years what are you going to concentrate on Well, it concentrates primarily on the temple and worship and Levitical priesthood. But then you say, okay, but there's other things there. The other concentration is this. Notice how, whether it was the divided kingdom or the United Kingdom, whenever they walked with God, their battles and their financial prosperity was great. Whenever they decided not to walk with God, there was great problems that came into their life. And because of that, he would say to them, do you realize how rich your spiritual heritage is? Do you realize how simple this is? Live for God and be blessed. Abandon him and be lost. Do you realize how great our God is? He loves you. And so tonight we're gonna come back and we're gonna look on this next slide at the ark. And why is that tied in to, we're gonna focus primarily tonight on just chapters 13 through 17. And we're only gonna bring out two uh, simple stories with a Psalm of Thanksgiving in the middle. Why out of all of this, how is this supposed to be encouragement to them? Why is it encouragement for them to learn about the ark of the covenant being brought back into the temple? Why is that significant for these people to be grateful again and to be excited and to say, now let's build a strong kingdom with God again. Why is that important? And then the next story that we'll look is the building, let's back up a slide, the building of of the temple. Why is that important? And then tucked in the middle of it, the poet David, wrote a psalms of thanksgiving. Why is this so significant? Well, obviously, if they're going to be the people God wants them to be, instead of being down and out, poor pitiful us, we're not a part of the glorious kingdom like David and Solomon, those people were, look at us, we have nothing to live for. He's saying, why don't you see what is offered to you and be grateful? And why don't you realize the potential if you continue walking with God and be grateful instead of giving up and giving in why not stand up as the very end of the book says now let's go up the idea is now let's go up and build and so that in mind this next slide is going to show you that, that a lot of this passage of Thanksgiving comes out of three other psalms. Uh, portions of them are being quoted. But I want to close by showing you this, and we'll pick back up on this tonight. But I want to close by showing you this. Uh, we're about to go into Bible class and we're going to pray. And I hope that, that our prayers, uh, at least in part, sound something like this. First Chronicles 16 and 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why would we give thanks to him? Call upon his name. Why would you call upon his name? You see a a, a basketball coach and maybe there's a certain play that he wants to run. And so he calls a guy off the bench. He says, hey, call in your number. Go in, we're gonna run this play. Why? There's something that that particular athlete can do that's needed. Why would you call upon the name of the Lord? Do you realize how great he is? If we realize how great the Lord is, we would never not call upon his name. But notice here, the plea is, give thanks to him, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. How would we make known his deeds among the people? We could sing them, we could talk of his wonders. Verse 12, we could remember them, we will glorify him, but what are we going to do? We're going to sing songs, but what are we going to talk about? Wondrous works, and that is Paula. That's the word we've been studying all year. That could be translated just as correctly there talk of his marvels and when you look in verse 12 what are we to remember we're to remember his marvels which he has done wonders and judgments on the earth in just a few minutes we're going to go into Bible class and I hope I hope that we are not so arrogant that we wouldn't pour our heart out in thanksgiving because we are so thankful that God what God has done we will speak of his wonders Look, God hasn't stopped working. God is just as active today in the congregation of Mount Juliet as he was in the life of Israel several thousand years ago. Have we spoke of what he's done in gratitude? We're about to go and over the next hour, we will pray for every ministry and we need to look back and be grateful to God. But we also need to look forward and say god we don't want to take a step forward without you and we want to pause and we want to ask your blessings as we move forward in other words we want to call on your name we want you to move us through this next year if you give us time but we want to move through this next year looking back with gratitude to see the marvelous things that you have done What an amazing hour the next hour is going to be as every member is prayed for by name. Every request that's been turned in will be prayed and every ministry will be prayed about. Not so we can just do a little exercise and hit a check mark and say, wow, God, we prayed to you today. But because the depth of our heart is so grateful to God for who he is, we know who he is and we love him and we want to tell of his wondrous deeds. Is there anything we can do to help you this morning? move closer to the Lord. If you're ready this morning to be immersed into Christ, be restored. If we